You are listening to Artistic Finance, show 68. On today's show, I interview certified financial planner Matt Queller. We discuss what a financial planner is and does, how to determine if and when you should enlist the help of one, and what you can do to prepare yourself for a meeting with an advisor. We also discuss what a financial plan is, the fees and minimums to work with a planner long-term, or meeting one time to create a custom financial plan. The goal with this two-part series is to create the best resource available for anyone wondering if they should get a financial planner. This can be a guide you can refer back to time and time again. I've already re-listened to this interview twice, and I'll likely refer back to it many times. In the quest to make this the best resource for determining if you should get a financial planner, Matt and I chatted for over two hours. Instead of having one long two-hour episode, I decided to make it a two-part series. Without further ado, let's get to the show. You're listening to Artistic Finance Podcast, where your host, Ethan Steimel, interviews successful artists, leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire artists to grow their wealth. Welcome, and thank you for listening. I am your host, Ethan Steimel, and today I welcome Matt Queller to the podcast. Welcome, Matt. Happy to be here. Looking forward to it, Ethan. And we're recording this on September 1st amidst the COVID-19 vaccine rollout, Pumpkin Spice season is starting up, and Broadway is reopening after the pandemic. So far, no shows have been selling out, but time will tell. So, Matt, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, definitely. So, speaking of Broadway, I've lived in New York City myself for the last five years, and I'm a senior private client advisor at People's United Advisors, which was formerly Gerstein Fisher. I majored in finance at Penn State University, where I met my wife 11 years ago. And for the last five years, I've been working at a registered investment advisory firm. And we'll talk a little bit more later on the podcast of exactly what that is in Midtown Manhattan. And after school, I spent the first four years of my career working at Vanguard and helped to launch their hybrid digital advice solution there, Personal Advisor Services. I'm an active volunteer with Family Reach, uh, where I help to provide pro bono financial planning services to cancer patients, and also an active member of the Financial Planning Association of the New York Metro Chapter. Amazing. Fantastic. Can you describe your demographics for us? Yeah, definitely. So I'm 31. I'm a white male, again, born and raised in Buffalo, New York, and started Living in Philadelphia right after school, working for Vanguard for four years. And then I lived in New York City for five years after that. Studied finance right at Penn State. So that was a natural progression for me working for Vanguard right out of there. And that's where I also, you know, as I spoke about, got my licenses from uh, Series 7 and Series 63, which are some of the regulatory requirements to you know, talk to individuals about stocks and securities. That's also where you know, I became a certified financial planner. And more recently, I also became a registered social security analyst to help individuals with their claiming decision of optimizing when to start social security benefits. Got it. Got it. Okay, perfect. So you can help us decide when we can claim. <laughs> Way down the road. And yeah, let's hope the system's still there for you and me both. Oh, we, we are very positive. It is definitely going to be there. I, I'm not worried about that. <laughs> <laughs> Now, on to your artistic personality and your financial personality. For artistic, what is a live event that you like to experience? 
Yeah. So look, moving to New York City, so many options to choose from, right? And that's definitely one of the big draws for us. One of the things that I've been really into over the last few years is this thing called So Far Sounds. So really neat concept. And they have it all over the world. Just happens to also be great in New York City. Uh, what happens is they release this calendar of events of different concert venues that are going to be happening all around the city. So they give you the date and the neighborhood that the show is going to be in. And they usually have three musical groups that are playing short sets, you know, maybe 15 or 20 minutes each. Some of them are BYOB and at really cool locations. It could be a bar. You know, one of them I went to was at their headquarters, just in an apartment building. They have people's backyards or a rooftop where you can go to. So night before you buy your tickets, they tell you exactly what the address is. You show up and it's just an amazing way to discover great new artists. You know, you don't know what genre it's going to be. You don't know if they're from the New York City area or from another location just passing through. Uh, but again, I've seen some really awesome shows through that great way to explore different neighborhoods in the city and discover up and coming artists. And you never know who you're going to see and if they might be one of those, you know, next huge names that you catch at one of those shows. That's amazing. So I've never done that. Is it like, are you on an email list for it or how do you find out about them? Yeah, you can go right on their website. They have an app, you know, they make it really easy to sign up, refer friends, you know, great date night also. You know, I've gone there with my wife and other couples. Uh, really an awesome experience. And like I said, all over the world. So another good thing too, if you're traveling, which I know you and Nicole love to do, you know, you're looking for something to do when you're out in a new location, you can you know, find out tickets for that show. You don't really care who you're seeing, but you just want to see a night of good music. Great opportunity to check that out and explore a neighborhood in a new city somewhere around the world. Wow, this is amazing. Okay, so now on to your financial personality. Are you bad or good with money? Yeah, you know, I was laughing at this question because I just I think it's so subjective, especially as an advisor. Uh, but you know, I think I have to say here, right, as someone who's giving advice on people's finances, that personally I'm good at you know getting better with time. But you know, I flip that question back, right, and I even ask that to clients. You know, what does being good at money mean to you, and what does that even mean? You know, a little more philosophically, right? So does that mean that you have a lot of it that you you know? been saving all the time? Does that mean that you've set goals and met them? So, you know, it's more of a, a question. I know you've asked this for a lot of guests on the show that's, I think, open to interpretation. And a lot of times my job as an advisor to help define that for clients, what being good at money means for them. Because I also think people might seek out a financial advisor because they consider themselves bad with money. Maybe. Yeah, no, definitely. Or maybe it's the reverse which they're actually good with money, which is why they seek out an advisor. Right. Yeah, I see both sides to it. And, you know, I'm very fortunate to have a great upbringing and parents that, you know, helped educate me really early on about the importance of saving and working and investing. And, you know, the earlier you start just, you know, also being a finance major and learning about the benefits of compound interest, the more that that can accumulate and build up for you later on in life. So you know, I've really tried to design systems and put structure in place. And this is, you know, a lot of what I do when I work with my clients as well to make sure that you're doing things in an automated way where, you know, we all live such busy lives and a lot of times dealing with money isn't top of mind for people even though, you know, we think about it a lot and it it really matters about, you know, doing the types of things that we want to do in our life. We need money to pay for it. So, you know, I, I automate my savings into my retirement plan and my 401k that automatically gets distributed across the investments that I've selected in there and the various percentages. I have automatic monthly savings going into a non-retirement brokerage account. 
that again is spread out across a managed account where you know I have my firm take care of that for me. I've bought into our investment philosophy and know that each time those contributions go in, they're automatically spread out proportionately across the existing strategy that I've already put in place. So you know, number one, it takes the emotion out of the investing where you're thinking about, you know, is this a good time to invest? Is it a bad time to invest? Young folks like us, it's always a good time to invest, right? We want to think about accumulating and saving and really making sure that we're setting up ourselves for success in the future by having that structure in place. And it also allows you to take advantage of times when the market's lower and you're saving where it may look really scary out there, but because you have that automatic contribution going in, allows you to take advantage and accumulate more shares at those lower prices. I don't think that the emotional component can be understated too of really figuring out you know, what it's going to take to take that piece out of it. Now, I'm just as susceptible to all the same things that other people are, even as an advisor, right? I have people telling me about what the next hot stock is or you know, this great crypto investment to go into. Uh, but by having that system in place and you know, having structured percentages of here's what I want going into a retirement account, here's the percentage of our household savings that I want going into a non-retirement account, Here's something that I feel more comfortable having, you know, only a certain amount in, say, more speculative investments really helps to take out a lot of that emotional component that comes along with the investing. Okay, I don't want to get too personal with you, but I am curious because you have everything automated and presumably you have a steady paycheck. How technically does that work out? Like, do you just have it set up so it goes into your bank account and then the bank shifts money around? Or like, how does that actually work? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, something that has gotten a little more complex since I've gotten married to, and I hope we get into this in the podcast about couples combining their finances, because, you know, that's a sensitive topic. And for me and my family, again, going back to being an advisor, that's something that I always try to have as much open communication about and really put structure in place for us to have conversations and set meetings about it. Otherwise, it gets pushed to the side. So, you know, I meet with a lot of my clients on a quarterly basis or, now, semi-annual basis, I try to do the same with those type of check-ins for me and my wife to go through and, you know, take our pulse of where we are, you know, how we're tracking towards our goals and are there any adjustments that we need to make. Back to your question of, you know, how that actually works you know, logistically. So we have our paychecks that go into a bank account and then through the 401k, those contributions come directly out of my paycheck. So before that even hits the bank account, that money is going in there at a set percentage. Now, always get your employer match. So that's my advertisement also to make sure that if you are fortunate enough to have that as part of the company that you work for, make sure that you're contributing at least up into that amount, again, depending on your circumstances, because that's one of the only free lunches that's out there and investing is getting that match. For the non-retirement brokerage account, that's just a set dollar amount each month that comes directly from our bank account where our paychecks went into into that investment strategy. So, you know, let's say that that's 60% US stocks, 40% international stocks for simplicity's sake here. $1,000 is going in, $600 of that goes automatically across the US stock options that are in there. 40% goes into the international stocks every month routinely. I don't have to think about it and automatically gets invested month in and month out. So it's actually just coming out of the bank account, not like the, the check isn't actually getting split up into anything. Yeah. And, you know, that's part of the beauty of the professional money management to, uh, you know, thinking about 
I could go out there and each month I'd have to select those investments or I trust a professional to do it that's in line with my risk tolerance, my goals. You know, it makes sense of how aggressive I'm invested for the time frame that I'm investing in. And I know that the positions selected in there were selected for a reason because they're high quality investments, low cost, diversified, and things that I think are going to be appreciating over time. I was looking at the notes you sent over and you also mentioned you hope we get into this. So I sort of actually want to talk about it just now. Let's do it. Combining finances with a spouse. Mm-hmm. You said that you do formal quarterly check-ins with your spouse. I try to. I can't say we've hit every single one. And uh, you know, sometimes we reschedule. But yeah, this is you know me putting uh, an invite into uh, a calendar and say, look, you know, it's Sunday afternoon. We're going to sit down, spend an hour going through our finances. And, you know, this is similar to what I do with my clients, but one of the first things that we go through is our net worth statement, right? What's the balances across all of our accounts using that as a great one page blueprint for every financial decision that we make. You know, we never want to make financial decisions in a vacuum, but always want to take that holistic picture into consideration. So, you know, we'll make sure that we have updated bank account balances, investment account balances, retirement account balances. And then also, you know, talk through what's going on in their lives. Uh, I mentioned that we're in the real estate market now. So, you know, we want to make sure that we have our down payment funds in cash ready to go. But at the same time, you know, we're thinking forward to the future and other things that we're saving for down the road. So whether that's building up funds in a retirement account or saving in a non-retirement account for things that are much sooner than, say, 30 plus years down the road that we ultimately want to build up money for. Those are things that I'm trying to spur those conversations uh, really defining what it is that we're saving for and not just building up a pot of money. Because I think that really helps people track towards those goals and be motivated when they can put something tangible around those dollars that they're going to be spending on down the road. Okay, Nicole, if you listen to this episode, we need to start doing formal quarterly check-ins on our net worth, et cetera. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but look, you know, so many couples, it's just sometimes it's awkward Uh, If you're not talking about it or there's different spending habits, you know, someone is really a saver and someone is, you know, someone who likes to go out and enjoy their money more and spend it. So, you know, just having that level set and expectations, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but just making sure that you're on the same page with them and have a good understanding of where you're at, you know, really sets you guys up for success. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So now to get into what we're really here to talk about, which is about finding a financial advisor. We are not, at least I'm not, you speak for yourself, but I'm, we're not giving financial advice officially. We're just chatting through scenarios and ideas. Any similar circumstances to anybody listening is purely coincidental, <laughs> and everybody should be seeking advice from a qualified person who, who knows your specific situation. Do you want any disclaimer out there? No, that's good. That covers it. So the reason why I wanted to talk to you about finding a financial advisor is that freelance artists they go job to job. And I think a lot of times getting into their career, they immediately feel like they're behind. They don't have a steady paycheck. I think a lot of times avoid money talk, avoid money situations. And even though they have to deal with it to run their lives, paycheck comes in, have to pay the rent. So they know how to handle money, but they're so busy, they don't focus on it. And then I think a lot of times people think, oh, I should have a financial advisor. And they just assume that. I mean, I have a financial advisor. We'll get into that in a bit. (laughs) But I think people don't need a financial advisor because I think a lot of the financial advice is you can learn for yourself. Like it's not too complicated. It's like you need to make more income 
than your expenses. That's sort of the gist of it. But I think people think that they need a financial advisor. And even me saying, I don't think we need one, we still have one. So I just sort of want to talk through all that complication so that people can sort of think, oh, maybe I don't actually need one. Or maybe they're thinking, oh, wait, I really actually should take time and meet with one, even if for only one meeting. So that being said, <laughs> Matt, you are my and Nicole's financial advisor. And we've been with you since 2016, uh, since August. So actually, this is five years we've now been with you. I call you Gerstein Fisher. I call the firm Gerstein Fisher because that's what it was called when we started with you. During our tenure with you, <laughs> you moved to accounts that are a million dollars plus assets under, under management, but you kept us even though we may or may not <laughs> fit the bill for having a million dollars under management. So thank you to that. And I'm also saying that so that anybody listening can know that you might need a million dollars of investable assets to hold with Matt if you're going to use him as an advisor. But maybe you can explain that for yourself. Yeah, I think that's a great segue to talk through who needs a financial advisor, right? And what's even available in the marketplace? Because the industry has evolved significantly over the last 20 or 30 years where you know, traditionally, you know, you may have needed, say, a million dollars or more to work with the large type of brokerage houses. Think of your Morgan Stanley's or Goldman Sachs types of firms. But just the way that advice is delivered now, before it was very product based. So you may have needed to pay a commission or it's called a load, a fee upfront when you're purchasing the investment. And that's how advisors were compensated. The incentives weren't necessarily aligned with a client's best interest there. For an advisor to make their income, they needed to continuously sell you a product or trade your account to make sure that they were getting paid versus what moved down the line a little bit later on is charging clients as a percentage of the assets that are under management of the investments that are being managed by that firm or that individual, which is now the current structure that you and Nicole are on and that our firm operates under which really allows us to also sit on the same side of the table as our clients that our incentive is to try and help you make as much money as possible because you know a standard 1% of the assets under management as they get larger means a larger percentage of revenue that the firm is getting based on those dollars. But it also then has transitioned from where the advice you know may have only been operating under a standard where you were looking at something that was just suitable, right? So someone who's young, has a long time horizon, and is okay with fluctuations. If they were in a stock-based investment, then that might have been okay, even if it wasn't the cheapest option out there, or you know the advisor was getting compensated the load for it, versus where the industry has transitioned more now to, which is a fiduciary standard, which is an important word, and I'll just spend a little bit of time talking through that. But that ultimately means that you have you know, a legal obligation to provide advice that is in the best interest of the client, which I'm a firm believer that really when anybody is seeking out an advisor, and we'll talk through this as we get into more of the questions of what you should ask them, but make sure that you are working with a fiduciary to really have that confidence that the advisor is going to be there to work for your best interest and not to put more money in their pockets. So, you know, back to who needs the advisor, right? And does everybody need one? I don't think the answer is yes, even as an advisor myself. I think everybody would benefit from a conversation with one, but 
having an ongoing relationship with an advisor isn't the best fit for everybody. So you think about people who might have you know, a negative net worth, they just graduated, they have a ton of student loan debt, which is you know, extremely commonplace now for you know, that generation of individuals, you know, say that have graduated over the last 10 years that are still saddled with a huge amount of undergraduate and graduate debt. So there's types of ways where you can still get advice, work with individuals who are knowledgeable about that topic, but you don't necessarily need to pay for an ongoing consultation, either through that asset under management amount or another type of model that I'll talk through in a little bit as more of a subscription-based fee, which is also becoming more common now. So you can do either one-time consultations where you either pay by the hour for that time that you're meeting with the advisor, or you can do something where you get just a one-time financial plan and that can range in cost from, you know, say on the low end, $500 or $1,000 to the more complex $3,000 or even $5,000 plans, depending on your location and the individual that you're working with. That's really going to give you at least a really good foundation to maybe decide down the road that you do want to work with an advisor, say, once you're out of debt or you've saved a little bit more money up to have that ability to make more complex decisions. Got it. Okay, can I ask this question? <laughs> what is a financial advisor and what do they do for clients? Yeah, look, really important to define, right? Especially for someone who's thinking, why would I need one and what do they even do in the first place? So and I think at its core, a financial advisor is there to help you grow and protect your wealth, to help you live your best financial and, and personal life, right? So they're there to get involved and give advice on all aspects of your finances, at least what I think is a great advisor and the type of advisor you know, that you'd want in your corner. So whether that's investments, insurance, cash flow planning around your budget, looking at your employee benefits at work and making sure that you're maximizing those, thinking about estate planning when you have kids and you're thinking about what you want happening after your passing. And you know, taxes is the huge piece of making sure that they're working in line with the other professionals that are in your life for whenever you have an important financial decision, you can go to that trusted advisor to get help and make sure that you're setting things up in a way that are really aligned with what you want to do with your life and how you can try to make your money work as hard as possible for you. You're talking about they can help with important decisions in your life and important financial decisions. Nicole's parents and my parents do not ask us the question of, are you guys going to have a baby? <laughs> but every single meeting that we have had with you, you I'm not going to say you start off, but you say, so uh, children, is that in the plan? Every single time. <laughs> yeah, look, it's why a lot of people come to an advisor in the first place. You know, We'll talk through some of those primers of when it might be a good time to think about having that conversation because there is then a lot of knowledge that you can either get from that conversation with an advisor to your point of reading online and trying to educate yourself about, you know, the types of ways that you can really help set up your kids for success in the future, which I know, you know, every parent wants for their children. So whether that's, you know, saving in a way that has some tax advantages for them going to college down the road and using that money for education expenses, starting to save for them and other types of accounts or getting gifts from family members and not just wanting that sitting around in a bank account, but investing on their behalf. It just becomes, again, a little bit more complicated of all the things and the decisions that you need to make in your life. 
Plus, I think one of the biggest ones here that you know, I don't have kids yet. I know a lot of people that do is just the time, right? So you're taking care of a baby, you're taking care of young kids at home, especially you know, during the pandemic when I had so many Zoom calls with clients who were worrying about childcare and you know would have a toddler run across the screen and pop their head in is when you're dealing with everything with your household, are you also putting in that energy and effort to focus on your finances and make sure that you have the type of structure in place to make sure that your family's taken care of in the best way possible? And I think you're a great financial advisor, but what what do you think makes a good financial advisor? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think there's you know a lot of components to that. Number one, they have to care, right? So for someone to get into this industry, I think that's the core of what we do is we want to help people, right? And help them make sure that they're living back to that, you know, best financial and personal lives possible. So uh, you want someone who cares and who's doing the right thing for you, but they have to have, you know, the technical expertise. So you know, I recently read a, a survey on Twitter that looked at what's the most valuable services that a financial advisor offers, looking at it from that client perspective, right? And I'll go back to answering it from the advisor hat, but Really, having someone who can provide unbiased advice back to that, you know, someone who's caring, who's not putting just an extra dollar in their pocket for the advice that they're giving. Plus, this can't be underestimated enough is having that technical knowledge that the client doesn't have. So sure, you can go online, Google something, but, you know, if you ever tried to do that for anything medical or, you know, try to diagnose something on the internet, maybe you find the right answer, you read some conflicting things, you still want that expert opinion and someone who's, you know, gone through the education and has the experience of dealing with these issues time and time again to give you that type of advice. Plus, having their advisor define for them, you know, what really their goals are, and not just the qualitative aspect of what it is that you want to do, but you know, you want to save for a home. Well, great. What's that home going to cost? How long down the road are you planning on purchasing that for? What else do you have going on in your life that you might want to save for? So establishing those goals, but then also holding you accountable to check in on the progress that you're making and make adjustments along the way is going to be really important for them. And, you know, the investment component, I think that's what a lot of people traditionally think of when they work with an advisor is, oh, they're going to help me with my investments. A great advisor is fantastic at that, whether they're managing the investments themselves or use a third-party money manager to do that, but really making sure that when the markets do get choppy and you know people are watching CNBC and they're saying, sell out of your investments, or they're talking to a friend saying, look, everything's going to go to zero. At that time, having that trusted advisor to give you guidance during turbulent markets and Help yourself from, you know, making emotional or investment decisions in the moment that really might cause you to not reach your goals or have you fall off track from the types of things that you were saving for. And last but not least is just, again, all of those different financial changes that do come up in life and that pop up and having an advisor who already knows you and can talk through things like, a job change or buying a home, having a kid, saving for retirement, all those different life events and having a great advisor there who can help you out with those steps along the way is really powerful and something that is really valued. Yeah. Um, Also, I think that at any point going to a financial advisor is probably a good idea for anybody. But I also think prep work on yourself is really important, like knowing your own financial picture and, and knowing, I guess, the hardest question for everyone is like, what is your goal? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's always an impossible 
such a hard one that you just have to face that question. And, and even if you don't give a good answer to it, you like have to give an answer. But what do you think people, and maybe specifically artists, mm-hmm. weird thing about artists is they are people. So what should people do maybe as prep work if they're thinking, I want to get a financial advisor, what should I do for myself uh, to educate myself before even going to find one? Yeah, look, Ethan, you hit the nail on the head, right? It's really that introspection of taking a look at the mirror and doing an honest assessment of taking a look at where are you today and where do you want to go down the road? And then you know, when it's time to meet with the advisor, we're there to do that diagnostic to say, what are the gaps or the opportunities that exist right now to help you bridge that gap between where you are today and where you ultimately want to get to? So, you know, there is the the quantitative, right? Putting together that summary of all the accounts that you know, I told you I do that update with my wife on each quarter of what's the balance for each of the accounts. So both on the asset side and the liability side. So taking a look at bank accounts and grouping them into main categories, right? You have your cash, you have your non-retirement, we call taxable accounts and your retirement accounts, I'd say are the three broad categories that you can throw real estate in there. But then on the flip side, you also want to know what's any debt that I have and put that all on that same page of you know, your summary of what your situation looks like, whether that's credit card debt or mortgages or student loans. So taking a look at where you are on paper is going to be a really helpful first step of just before you even start thinking about the goals. This is what you have to put towards all of those goals that you want. And then that second piece is more of the qualitative or philosophical, what do I want my money to do for me? And I think that's the most important part, right? Because you don't want to just snack money for no purpose, but really have those goals planned out and have those aspirations for what you want your money doing for you down the road. Okay, this is just a complete side note, but the term brokerage account, I just learned this word a couple of years ago and I was so proud when I learned it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to explain it so everyone can know. Uh, but cash is like your checkings and savings account. Mm-hmm. And then you have your retirement accounts, which are usually stocks and bonds, and those are either taxable or not taxable. And then you have a brokerage account, which is a taxable account, which is just your money, but in an account that buys stocks and bonds. Yeah, exactly. And you know, there's so many different names that are out there. But what I love to see, especially as an advisor and getting people involved in investing in an early ages, it's never been easier now for someone to go out and buy a stock, whether that's, you know, on a large company like Vanguard or Fidelity, or even now companies like Robinhood that are, you know, making it so easy for people to go in, buy a stock without paying any commissions, track it in an easy way right on your phone on an app, and start learning about investing with real money of putting that to work. We had somebody named Damian Lupo on the podcast who has a company called EQRP. You know, his advice was just get some skin in the game. Mm-hmm. And so he said, if you're in a conversation and you're talking about Bitcoin, just go download Coinbase and get $10 of Bitcoin or $100 of Bitcoin. What you're saying too, that's like, if you have kids, I don't have kids, but if and when I do, no. all right, all right, better cut that part out. <laughs> <laughs> in theory, if I were to ever have kids, I feel like at age six or eight, I would open a a Robinhood account and buy them like part of a share of Disney just so that they get used to that. Because to me, like learning by doing is the only way. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, we had this even at our firm, we started a young investors club. So me and a few other the, the advisors that I work with, and, you know, we had teenagers come in 
and start learning about investing. You know, we spoke to them about what's a stock, what's a bond, what are the types of things that you should look for when you're researching a company. And the parents loved it. You know, they were thrilled that we were getting them involved at a really young age. Now, this could be a whole nother podcast talking about how I think the education system does a terrible job at preparing people for all of these real life decisions that they need to be making of saving and investing and what types of accounts they should have. For these kids, you know, it was great. And there's so many tools that are available now that are free, that are online, as you spoke to, that allow them to at least get started. And then, you know, maybe as things do get more complex down the road, that's when they seek out that professional help. But the skin in the game, I mean, let's just speak through that because I think that's so important. And, you know, you can buy just one share of a company, even partial shares now. So it doesn't take a lot of money to do it. And actually having, you know, those real dollars being put to work teaches you really valuable lessons, right? So and I bought my first stock when I was 13 with my bar mitzvah money that I was fortunate enough to do so with, you know, some money that my dad allowed me to invest. 13 is young, but, you know, that sets you up to then learn. I had some winners, some losers, but also learned a lot of really valuable lessons along the way getting started that early. I love that. I love when I hear about people doing things at like 13 or 10 or 11 or 12. So if I have kids, man, starting them, maybe at age one, I'll start reading them money books or something. There you go. (laughs) When is a good time for someone to seek out a financial advisor? Yeah. So I think, again, those major milestones, I'll keep going back to that because that's, I think, what I see most commonly is there's a, you know, big financial decision to be made. And that really is what prompts that initial conversation of, Okay, um, you know, I just got married, you know, back to the combining the finances. Let's really start setting a great foundation for ourselves and it's time to get some professional help here. Or, you know, we just had kids, our life is so crazy, we really need someone to help us out with this. A lot of times we see it as a death in the family and someone has an inheritance and it's, you know, a large sum of money where they've never had to deal with it themselves and they're unsure of what to do and they want to make sure that they're doing the the best possible thing with this newfound wealth that they have. So uh, the milestones, I think, are a big one. But then also, a lot of times, it's just prompted from, you know, conversations. We see a big uptick, and this is really funny when you see it, but some of our busiest times are right after the holidays, right? You're sitting around at the Thanksgiving table, you're having conversations with somebody, money inevitably comes up. But, you know, back when we were Gerstein Fisher in those days, and this still rings true for a lot of our new clients that come on board, Word of mouth referrals was the number one source and to this day still is the number one source of new clients that come in. You know, when I think about how you really, you know, find any professional service, a lot of times you just start with your friends and family, you get a name, and then you go to Google, you search them, and, you know, you see, okay, they, you know, vouch for them, but then I also want to verify that they have the credentials or the expertise necessary to help me out where I need that help. It's funny you say word of mouth referrals because that's how we ended up with you as a financial advisor. Why do most people come to you? Do you take on new clients uh, all the time? Yes, regularly. We, we've been with you for five years, what I call the long haul. Do most of the people come to you for the long haul or do they just come for a meeting? Yeah, we hope it's for the long haul. Uh, just again, based on the way that we work with clients today. But really for me as an advisor too, I think the longer that I work with somebody, also the more valuable our relationship is because I know them better. And when they come to me with an issue, you know, there's the personality that you have to know that you're dealing with. If there's a married couple, spouses may have different perspectives on what they're trying to do or have different attitudes towards money also. When new clients come in the door, I mean, 
it happens all the time. So it's hard to nail down onto one specific reason, but they may have also been unhappy with another advisor is what we see a lot of times is, you know, I wasn't getting the personalized attention that I wanted. So some people want to speak to an advisor more regularly than the type of service that they may have been getting elsewhere. It may have been fees. Now that's part of the consultative approach that I think a great advisor does is flush that out in that introductory meeting of even asking those questions, you know, what prompted you to come in today? So those are just a handful of the reasons, but it really is all across the board of why someone decides to come in and have that introductory meeting. But most times I do see that as some type of event driven decision. Got it. Okay. Cause I was looking at your notes and I, I was looking at the reason Vanguard someone hires a, an advisor from Vanguard. Yeah. So, you know, again, back to the great training that I received there and you know, I can't have enough good things to say about Vanguard, but when they taught you about you know, speaking with the client and figuring out if advice was a good fit for them in an ongoing relationship, you know, they had you ask questions to determine, you know, open-ended ones to let the client speak to you. What is that reason that they're seeking you out? And the three most common ones that came up were, I don't have the time to do it back to, you know, that crazy life with kids or busy job. So they might have the expertise or the willingness to do it themselves, but they just lack that time. And that's the biggest decision. The next one is that willingness to really take it on themselves. So a lot of people, you know, they pay for professional services in their life and they're more than happy to do that for uh, another professional to step in. And the last one on here is just ability. There's so many folks, and you know, especially when you brought up artists who may not have had that education or you know, think that it's taboo to talk about money and are uncomfortable around the subject where they wouldn't know the first thing about what a stock is and it sounds like a foreign language anytime you start talking through anything finance related. That is you know, probably the biggest one that we see come in for people hiring an advisor is just they don't have that expertise. Right now, again, I could do my best to self-diagnose something off the internet, but when I have a serious problem and I need professional help and I keep going back to the doctor analogy, but I find that to be one of the best ones because I really want to make sure that I go to someone that you know got the education that they need to be able to treat me in the best way possible and also has a great reputation. If I can talk to somebody and they vouch for that individual that I went to, that's always a big win and makes me feel a lot more comfortable. Amazing. And at the first meeting, what happens at a first meeting? Yeah, again, if you talk to 10 different advisors, they'll probably give you 10 different responses to how they handle the first meeting. But for me, it's all about the client, right? The most successful ones that I've had are when I can get that prospective client talking about what's important to them in their lives and what they really want to accomplish. So now the client to me, the prospective client should be talking at least three quarters of the time with the advisor. You know, doing very little talking. They, of course, are going to come in afterwards after they you know, get all of the important information that they need from the client and talk about why they think it's a good fit or not a good fit and all the great work that they're going to do for the client as part of the relationship. But you know, what I think people can expect is really a diagnostic, right? Of, you know, a lot of my questions start out with, you know, tell me about what type of help you're looking for and really just opening it up that broadly to have that client describe, you know, most likely one of those reasons of why they're originally coming for advice in the first place. Then we start going there. You know, I like to start with those qualitative questions before getting into the hard numbers with somebody, but that is still really important because you need to know where they are to get their pulse on 
what type of situation they're working with for you to be able to give them good advice. So then we'll start talking through the different types of accounts that you have, balances that are in there, your experience, you know, saving and your cash flow, whether or not you have worked with an advisor and how you've managed your own finances in the past is always really important information to get. And I think the more prep work, as you spoke about beforehand, that a client can do, the more successful those introductory meetings are when they've really taken that time to think about what it is that they want their money doing for them and, and where they're at. But, you know, look, you've done so many of those introductory meetings. That's, you know, a spouse staring at the other spouse, like, what is it that we want to do? They haven't really taken that time to think about it. So, you know, that is really commonplace for that initial conversation to really jumpstart a lot of those discussions around what it is we want our money doing for us. I find it really funny that you said the client should speak three three quarters of the time and the because Nicole and I are not known for talking a lot and specifically not talking about ourselves a lot. So I can only imagine that first meeting, you guys are wanting us to do all the talking and we're sort of wanting you to do all the talking. Yeah, look, sometimes it's crickets when I'm asking the questions, but no, that's why it's also on the advisor to ask really good questions that you can get more thoughtful responses for and keep them open-ended. So they're not just yes or no answers and you're checking the box moving on to the next one from there. But, you know, one I love to ask also, and that I think is great for clients to think about is, you know, really visualizing it's 12 months from now, we've been working together for a year. What does success look like? And, you know, what's happened throughout that year period that makes you say, wow, I'm really happy that I hired a financial advisor. And that also helps to flesh out and have the client think of, okay, what is it that I'm really looking for in a relationship with an advisor? And what does success mean to me? You know, that, that goes back to your original question, right, of, you know, are you good with money and what's your money doing for you? For each person, the answer to that question is different. You know, some people may want to have knock it out of the park investment returns, and that's what their response will be of, you know, I really want you to make as much money for me as possible. Some other people might say, I want you to protect my wealth, and I want to make sure that my accounts aren't fluctuating that much, and I save a lot of money on my taxes by the advice that you gave them for me. It's different for every client, and that's why it's so important for a good advisor to be asking those types of open-ended questions to not put any of those prospective clients in a box, but really let each one tell their individual story. I think when, when we met with you, our idea was we, we're going to give you money and you're going to invest it. And we were like, that's it. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> and then you guys are like, well, what are your goals, et cetera? And it's like, oh. Oh, that's a tough question, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. So for, for me, I think that's the, the hardest. And probably why I've mentioned it so much is like, that's the hardest one that, that you need to go prepared to sort of say, well, these are my goals. Because the financial advisor, frankly, doesn't really care what your goals are. They just want to know what those goals are so that they can figure out how to achieve those with you. But it's up to you to actually know sort of what you want. You know, do you want to be retiring on a fishing boat somewhere? fantastic. Let us know that, you know, or do you want to be retired near your family so that you can take care of the grandkids? Yeah. Right. And we'll give you a lot of primers, right? We can say based on our experience of someone who fits your situation, who's around your same age, these are really common things that we see people saving for the types of accounts that are set up or the things that successful investors have done who are in a similar position as you. So drawing on that experience that you know, you do start to see a lot of patterns of, you know, people saving for a lot of the same things or asking the same types of questions or needing help with similar types of things. And, and one thing I remember when we first met with you, you guys gave us a monthly budget 
just a spreadsheet of here's add up all your bills and then add up all your income. Mm-hmm. You guys handing it to us just made it very cut and dry and very clear and very easy to just quickly. I mean, within five minutes, you can sort of figure out your monthly budget mm-hmm. and then figure out, you know, what can you save or maybe you can't be saving right now. So you need to, you know, figure this out so that you can be saving. But I, I thought that was a useful thing. So I, I would just say if someone's going to meet with a financial advisor, probably sort of knowing what your long-term goal is roughly. And then also if you do a, a quick budget of income and expenses, that would be useful to maybe take with you to the meeting. Yeah, for sure. And look, the word budget, I think has a bad reputation. I think it's this dirty word. If people don't want to limit what their spending is, for me, it's more of that diagnostic of here's where we are of at least categorizing what each of those dollars spent on are. And it's a hard exercise for a lot of people. Not everybody pays attention to that. Now, there's some great apps that are out there now that will help track that for you. You know, I personally use Mint, which is owned by Intuit that does the tax software. You know, I have my bank accounts and credit cards through Chase, and they have a really good tracker on the credit card where I put the majority of my expenses on that will break it down by category for you. So it's only gotten easier to do that. But it does take time, effort, and energy for you know someone to sit down, and especially a couple who may have different spending habits or not have their finances combined to really answer that question. And you know, that's one of the heaviest lifts when you're first starting out of working with the client is helping them discover what that spending is. But that number, either the surplus that you're either breaking even or you have a deficit is really one of the first starting places that an advisor wants to direct the client to because that's gonna then impact your ability to save and reach any of those goals that you want. So I think, you know, Everybody kind of knows that you want to be making more than you're spending, but until you actually know what both sides of that equation is, it's a lot harder to say, okay, well then, what do we really have to put towards those different types of goals that we're saving for? What are the questions that people should be asking of financial advisors when they meet with them? Yeah, so another great question, and this one is like the job interview prep of having those questions ready when they ask you, you know, do you have any questions for me? You don't want that answer to be, no, I'm all set, but really be prepared. And, you know, especially if this is going to be a long-term relationship that you're forming with someone, these are incredibly important to get the answers to. And it's also going to vary a lot differently across the different advisors that you're speaking to. So I go back to that fiduciary piece. I think that's one of the first questions that a client should be asking their prospective advisor is just straight up, are you a fiduciary and let them explain the way that their firm is structured and the way that they work with clients. And then also hearing about the credentials that they have. So, you know, they may not necessarily be even fully aware of what all of them mean, but for me, the certified financial planner, that's the gold standard of working with an advisor from a financial planning perspective, where there is meaningful education, time requirements, and you have to pass a really lengthy test to make sure that you have that credential. And that does help to separate a lot of the advisors from someone who may not necessarily have a designation like that. Also, if you're looking for more of a specialty, say you're a pre-retiree or someone who's retired, there's a lot of licenses or designations that are out there for people who work with those types of folks, whether it's you know the social security one, like I spoke about, or retirement income, where you have more specialized credentials that you can focus around. Not this should be the deciding factor. You know, there's a lot of things that go into that decision of finding a good advisor, but 
definitely having a good idea and not being afraid to ask about costs is one of the biggest tips that I can give to people when they're thinking about hiring a financial advisor, because you also want to be able to do an apples to apples comparison, asking about the costs and not just what they charge, but what are those all in costs and using that language. And you know, the advisor should have a very clear idea when you're asking about that. If that is something where you're paid by a percentage of the money that you manage, well, that's just one of those costs that you can say, you know, are there trading fees every time you buy and sell something? Do the investments that I own in my account come with their own separate fees? And can you really put that on paper and show me if I was working with you, what that would cost for the year? There's some different models that are out there though. So it's not just that asset under management space. This is also a great primer then for the advisor to talk about the way that they're compensated. And a lot of times, you know, that's something that should come up in the first meeting as you're making that decision. So you have that percentage under management method. You know, the one that's getting more popular now is a subscription-based fee where just like you pay for a gym membership or Netflix for clients that don't necessarily have the assets yet that are earlier in their career and the industry likes to call them Henry's, high earners, not rich yet. So, you know, successful individuals who don't have say that half million threshold and a million dollar threshold, but have you know extra surplus to pay a professional, they could have potentially an upfront planning fee and then pay an ongoing amount per month to work with that advisor. You know, whether that's 250 or $400 a month, whatever it is that advisor charges, it's all across the board and depends on the geography, but that's gonna be a big component. Some other questions, how many years you've been doing this for, just asking about their experience. You know, I don't think most people wanna work with someone who's fresh out of college, especially knowing that there's a lot of technical expertise that an advisor would have. And also what other services does your firm offer? Are they just gonna be managing the investments for you or are they gonna be doing a lot of the things in-house, whether that's taxes, insurance, estate planning, private banking for higher net worth clients where you're helping them out with their bank accounts and lending solutions. And do you have any clients that I can speak to as references? I think rate advisors really lean into that question and would have a handful of people that are already there to now endorse them. But actually hearing from the clients themselves can be really helpful. Another good one is what's your service model? So thinking through how often it is that we would meet with the advisor, is that with you or do you have other people on your team that I would be meeting with? And again, what's included in that fee that I pay for and, and what does that get me? Okay. So I think the only question of those that I asked you when we met was what were the fees? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, well, now everybody listening to this podcast can be a lot more informed and hopefully get answers to those questions that are out there. But, you know, there's a lot of lists also, you know, if you even Google that questions to ask, I've read a lot of good articles that are out there online that take a lot of the ones that I put and even some more in there as you're interviewing around and trying to find who's a good fit there. Okay. So my unofficial, if I were to go back to a first meeting with a financial advisor and do it over, the, there's three things that I would sort of prep for the meeting with, which is one, I would know my goals. Do I want to be saving for children, for their education? Am I saving for my retirement? Are we going to be purchasing a home, a car? Then two is the budget I would do ahead of time. How much can I be investing with this advisor every month and or what my initial investment might be, what I've, what I've saved so far? 
And then I think the third thing is having questions for the advisors. Yes, I would probably just do an online search of what should I be asking, or I would listen to this podcast again and say, okay, these are what I'm going to ask them. I'm going to grill them. No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not the grilling type. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about me and Nicole, our, our experience finding you as our advisor. Um, and maybe you want to talk about it too, we, but I, I guess I'll go first. The reason we went with you, Matt Queller, Initially, obviously, it was just a time savings thing. It was just easier. You know, I'm no money wizard, but I sort of under the, understand the idea and I know how to buy a stock or an index fund. It's just out of sight, out of mind is a big thing for Nicole and me. And it's just easier. So I, I would say that's probably the, the strongest reason why we went with you or an advisor in general. And then the other thing is that you actually were really interested in working with us because we were actually not looking for a financial advisor. We were actually looking for an accountant. We found one at Gerstein Fisher called Rob Sherman, who we now call St. Rob. <laughs> he was the best <laughs> accountant we ever had. We loved him. Yeah, Rob was great. We miss him. I'm not saying we actually shed tears when he left us, but we shed tears when he left. <laughs> <laughs> so whoever has Rob Sherman as an accountant right now, you are the luckiest people no disrespect to any of our accountants or the people we've had in the past, but we were looking for an accountant. You came after us and said, hey, uh, totally, you can use Rob Sherman. He's a swell person. But also, would you like an advisor? Because we would like to have you as clients as, if you want. And Nicole and I were sort of taken aback by that because we thought, what financial advisor would ever want us as clients. And that actually by this weird chain of events is we actually had met with a financial advisor. They just point blank said, oh, you don't have a million dollars. I don't even know why we're meeting. Let's just end this meeting. Yeah. Look, that's the sad reality that's out there. And I think why there's such a gap for people who, you know, still need that advice or may not even realize that they benefit from it, but just are excluded from the conversation before it even starts. So we, so we were a little bit soured to financial advisors. And then you guys came to us and, and our response to you was, we don't have much for you to invest. Are you sure that you want us as clients? And you guys said, yes, absolutely, absolutely. We have, we have this figured out for people who don't have that million dollars. We put you in this sort of setup where the fees are really low and we don't really manage. And then hopefully in time, you know, we'll we'll get more involved with you. But we definitely would love to have you. All right. We grow you into that million dollar client down the road. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah you know, in 30 years, if you have the million dollars, that'll be great. But <laughs> until then, we still have a system set up for you guys. Uh, that's why. And then the other thing was your fees were virtually zero because it was if you're under X amount, it's virtually you're just paying. We're just going to put you into index funds and you'll pay the maintenance fee on the index fund. So you're not actually paying us anything. And then hopefully with time, you'll start paying us a little bit. And then the other thing, and maybe this is a quirk for us, is that we don't actually like meeting with advisors. Maybe you've realized this. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you guys are like, let's meet, let's meet. And Nicole and I are like, no, no, we, we talked about the plan. It's sort of set and forget. And uh, we don't really want to meet. And you guys are like, okay, that's cool. That's fine. Fine. If you don't want to meet, you don't have to. <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, the pandemic has been eye-opening for that too, because some clients love the Zoom calls. You know, they're doing it in their pajamas and they don't have to commute into the city. And, you know, some people say we can't wait for you to be vaccinated and come back into the office and, and meet face-to-face. -face. I think there's merits to both sides. 
But now that really also opens up the geography of who you could work with on both sides, right? So if you wanted an advisor in California, because you heard about someone great, you can't go meet with them face to face, but you can do a Zoom call with them and and they should still be able to do 90 or 95% of the work that a New York-based advisor is going to do. And on the flip side, for an advisor finding clients, they don't have to just be located in the New York area anymore, but you know, someone who is more open to doing virtual type of meetings or just phone calls or those types of check-ins does change the dynamic a little bit. And also, this is the first Zoom meeting you and I have ever had, but it has unrelated to do with the financial advisor part. <laughs> <laughs> so we somehow survived two years of pandemic with no Zoom meetings. Yes, but you brought up an important piece, and I just want to speak to this a little bit because one of the biggest value adds that an advisor can bring is being knowledgeable about the client's tax situation and incorporating that into the advice that's given. So Greg Fisher, the founder of Gerstein Fisher, you know, had grown his firm out of a tax practice in Brooklyn. It was his uncle's tax practice, and he had been there working when he was younger and you know, going through with the preparation of tax returns and realizing people were losing so much money to the taxes that they were paying and not paying attention to that when they were investing. So that was you know, a lot of the ethos that he took with him when he started his firm and you know he was a fantastic mentor and advisor to learn from uh, making sure that we always worked with our clients closely and paid attention to the tax component of their situation got you know at least last year's tax return because there's so much that you can discern from what's on that tax return to help them out in the future with choosing the right investments setting up certain type of accounts and you know really using that as a playbook for figuring out the best type of advice that you can give. Also, clients love to hear about the amount that you save them, right, on their taxes. So working closely with the accountant saying, you know, by making this retirement account contribution, you just saved, say, $2,000 on your taxes and you pay us $500 for your advisory fees. We just paid for four years of you working with us based on this one recommendation that we made to you. So it also helps the advisor quantify a lot of their value that they bring to the relationship for things that save clients money on taxes when they give that type of advice. All right, folks, that's where I'm going to cut part one of this two-part series. The discussion continues next week with another hour with Matt Queller. That episode wraps up with Matt giving some financial tips specific to artists, so be sure to tune in. If you want access to that episode right now, Become a patron at patreon.com slash artistic finance. You'll get early access to episodes and a private podcast feed with levels starting at $3 a month, which after some complicated number crunching, I figured out that is 10 cents a day. Now, the show is free to listen to, and that is intentional. I want as many artists as possible listening to the show, learning about finance, and using that knowledge for themselves and their peers patrons support that and pitch in to help cover the costs of running the show. You too can help by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash artistic finance. There's no long-term commitment and you can stop any time. Thank you in advance and thank you to all my current patrons. You guys are the best. One last announcement before I let you go. If you live in New York City and want to see a play I'm lighting, Come see Mary Murder F at the Flea Theater. It's a 90-minute screwball comedy that includes some light Jewish humor and some light professional ballroom dancing. The cast includes Gary Wolf, 
Audrey Rose Young, Candace Kaplan, and Ronnie Dutra. It's directed by Kim St. Leon and runs September 24th to October 3rd. Tickets are $50, and you can find a link in our show notes or at artisticfinance.com. And if you come to opening, I will see you there, September 24th. That's all I have for this week's episode. Until next week, break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance. Make sure to subscribe. To access our show notes, transcripts, or resources, go to artisticfinance.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Artistic Finance. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.